Show of hands, who was here last week? All right, all right. That was not a test, that was some context. Last week we started a series, for those of you who weren't here, called Your Brain is Trying to Kill You. And our thought as we programmed out the series was that the first few weeks would be spent from this platform us trying to help you to see that we all have an issue. What we found out last week is that all of us already know we have an issue. We, we ended our, our series with this text in, or our service last week with this text in, where you, you can text in what your brain is telling you. And as we started seeing all the answers pouring in last week, we had almost 100 people who, who texted back. Almost every single one of the responses that we got was deep and real and raw and terrible. We spend some time on Monday as a staff talking through the types of things that the people are dealing with and praying for all of us as a church because we realized this is not an issue that we have to convince you that we have. This is an issue that many of us live in all day, every day. As our brains just plague us with these lies about ourselves. Now, we do want you to feel if you're someone who struggles with that, you are not alone. There are hundreds of people in this room who, who deal with the types of things that you deal with. Last week, I shared a story about myself, how I wake up in the middle of the night, plagued with doubt and fear and those types of things, and I got several texts from individual people saying, hey, next time you're up at 1 a.m., give me a call. I'm up too. <laughs> well, we're in this thing together. So this morning, I wanted to share with you a little bit of, I'm not going to share any of the responses that were given last week. Those were all anonymous and personal, but I just want to share with all of us so that we can be praying this week and even so that we could pray right now. These are the categories of things that, that people drew out as what they're thinking about when their brain is coming at them and attacking them. So these, these are six different categories of thoughts. So many people said that when their brain is trying to kill them, their brain gives them this fear that they will never get out of the situation they find themselves in right now. Many people struggle with deep feelings, deep feelings of fear and regret, guilt, worthlessness. Many people feel like deep inside they're, they're not enough, not good enough. They're not helpful enough. They're not a good enough spouse or good enough kid or good enough parent or good enough friend. Many people say that there are things about themselves that bring them great sadness or shame. Many of us in this room feel lonely and unloved. And a lot of us fear that there are things that happened in our past that have canceled the opportunities that we might have had for our future. As we start our, our series kind of talking about how, how to get some victory over these things today, I, I think it's important for us to know that, that these things that we believe are lies. That this is not true. These aren't God reminding us of what is true about us. In fact, this is the enemy coming at us and trying to make us things, believe things that are not true about us. We thought that this morning it would be fitting to spend some time, even before we dive into the text, having communion together. To remember that, that the relationship that we have with God is beautiful and it is safe and it is freeing, that he loves us, that he is for us, that he sent his son for us, and that we have a covenant with him, a, an agreement with him, a relationship with him where he has done all the work and invites us to, to dine freely with him as those who are deeply loved by God and known by him where there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. This morning, I want to pray for our church, for our community. If one of these things that, that was written out last week is, resonates with where you're at, I want to pray for you this morning. 
And I want all of us, as, as we move into this series, to start by knowing that we are loved and known by God. So after I pray, the ushers will come and hand out the communion elements, some bread and a cup of juice. Hold those in your hands. And as we sing together, reflect on the fact that God loved us so much, he sent his son for us. Reflect on these things, and then we'll partake together in a moment. But let me pray for us as we move into this time. I don't know if you went on this journey with us last week, if you started listening to your brain. Some of our brains are pretty mean. <laughs> Some of our brains say the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes it feels like our brains are loud, and God comes in and tries to whisper, and we kind of shoo him away and say, hey, brain, what was that you were saying? We dwell in the lies, and we ignore the truth. Do you ever feel like your brain might be prejudiced against you? <laughs> I read a study a few years ago on human prejudice, the, the, the proclivity that, that we have as humans to, to grow these stereotypes about different people groups and people from different ethnic backgrounds or financial backgrounds or gender backgrounds, whatever it is. And it's pretty interesting because what the study said that was that the thing about prejudice is that the reason that these thoughts are so pervasive when we have feelings about other people is because our prejudices are only and always constantly reinforced and never negated. Like, for example, if you're like that classic, none of you are this person, but if you're that classic old person on a rocking chair on your porch and you hate teenagers, <laughs> you probably had this experience in your life sometime where a teenager like stole your car or something, I don't know, but you've developed this hatred towards teenagers and everything in your world now reinforces your stereotype, right? So if you're sitting on your porch and some teenagers walk by and someone throws their trash onto your lawn, you're like, oh, freaking teenagers. And if you're driving in your car and, and somebody pulls in front of you and slows down, you're like, oh, and you speed up and look at him and it's a 16-year-old, you're like, I knew it. <laughs> you come out of Starbucks and there's a group of young people and they're all talking real loud and throwing trash everywhere and smoking cigarettes. You're like, I knew I hate those teenagers. Everything you see reinforces what you already believe. If you were sitting in your kitchen and doing the dishes and you see a nice teenager walking by your house, minding their own business, being real quiet and throwing no trash on your lawn, you aren't thinking, huh, maybe I've been wrong all those years. Right? If anything, you're like, oh, I bet she's going to do something terrible later. Right? <laughs> reinforce and reinforce and reinforce. If you spent your last week studying the thoughts coming into your brain, there's a chance that what you realized is that you have prejudices about yourself and that everything in your life tends to reinforce what you already believe about you, whether it's true or not. For example, if you have this deep-seated belief that, that you'll never amount to anything, and this last week your boss came into your office and said, hey, I need to tell you something. I know you were up for this promotion, but we decided to go with somebody else. You walked away and your brain said, I told you you're never going to amount to anything. If your boss came into your office and your boss said, hey, good news, promotion, you'd be like, yay, and then you'd walk out of your office and your brain would say, just get ready, the other shoe's going to drop. Everything reinforces what you already believe is true. And if you feel lonely, if you feel alone, if you feel like no one loves you, and you hear your friends all go to a party and you weren't invited, right? It reinforces the stereotype. But if you get invited to a party, your brain is still using that same stereotype, the same prejudice about you to say, hey, you know, it's just a pity invite, right? 
It seems like when we have these thoughts that we believe are true, everything in this world, whether it's positive or negative, just reinforces the stereotype. And even worse, when we try to invite God into the conversation, like we talked about last week, a lot of times we invite God into the conversation, assuming he agrees. God, I mean, you know nobody likes me. I pray that you'd bring someone into my life who cares about me. God, I know that I'm never going to amount to anything, but honestly, if you could just make me content with my life, I would love it. Right? And even when we engage with God, we don't say, God, break down these lies. We assume that it's true and ask God to help us pick up the pieces in the midst of something that's not even real. Our brains are crafty. And our brains are trying to kill us. This morning, as we start this, this journey, we embark down this road of how to experience mental renewal and transformation. Uh, what we're going to try to do is figure out how to take our brains off of autopilot, right? To kind of take the keys to our car out of our brain's hands and say, I'm going to drive for a while. And, and yet, if you're like me and you've been living in this for a while, you're probably pushing back even at this thought today saying, listen, this is how I live. Like, there's no way out of this. Right? Maybe last week, you're like, okay, I'm stuck. I can't get out. I'm just, this is how I think. This is the channel that I live in, and there's no hope for me. I want to tell you that mental renewal is possible. And then over these next few weeks, we're going to look at these different texts of Scripture that show us what happens when people's brains get the best of them, and that God put in the Scriptures to teach us, to equip us to live our lives differently. And this morning, I want to take a look at a text of Scripture in Genesis chapter 25 about a guy named Esau. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis chapter 25. I don't know why, but Esau reminds me of a caveman, like from the Geico commercials in this, in this passage. We're going to read Genesis 25, verse 29 through the end of the chapter. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau responded. What good is my birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I think the caveman-ness of Esau uh, comes out more in the Hebrew text than the English text. Sometimes I feel like Bible translators are too nice to the people in the Bible. Because what we see when we look at this text is almost like this pleasant exchange where Esau comes in, he's been hunting all day, and he says, hey, this is the text that we see in the screen. He says, look, quick, please, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Right? It kind of seems like a conversation that two brothers would have, right? You've been out playing baseball all day. You come in, you're starving. Like, hey, give me a cookie. I'm starving, right? But this is not how it actually goes down. Esau acts like a caveman, right? If you read the Hebrew text, the, the translation is something a little more like this. I use please to try to be nice to Esau. Now I know other translators do that. Please, 
He comes in, he says, let me eat, or I want to swallow. Let me eat some of that red stuff, that red stuff. I'm starving. And the text is so choppy. It's like he comes in and he's hungry. He busts in the door. So, hey, in my mouth, red stuff, that red stuff, starving. Now, this is how the Hebrew reads. Even at the end of the passage, we get the same glimpse, and Esau's just ah, nah, 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 eating this lentil soup, right? He's, ah, nah, 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 nah. and the Hebrew, uh, the author in the Hebrew says that he finishes the soup, he gets up, he walks away, and all of us reading it are left wondering, what just happened here? Does he understand the gravity of what just happened in that room? Right? Everything about this story is crazy. Right? If you're the grandfather out in the country telling the story to your kids around a fire back in like 1000 BC or something, the grandkids are like, what, grandpa, what, what? The whole time comes in, red stuff, I need red stuff. And Jacob says, yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just sign over your inheritance first. Like your 401k, I want it. I, our parents' property, I want that too. The cars, I want all. I want it all. Just sign it over, right? And, and we feel like Esau would be like, what's, what's wrong with you? I just want some lentil soup. But, but Jacob's serious. And Esau says, listen, what good is that if I'm dead? I'm not going to inherit anything because I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. And everybody's like, what? And Jacob doubles down. He's like, listen, I, I brought a lawyer. I got the contracts written up. I made some soup, right? Sign here. I got the notary right here. Put your thumbprint, right? Sign it, sign it, sign it, right? And we expect that Esau would go, Jacob, you're crazy. I'm not signing my life away for a bowl of soup. But Esau says, swears his birthright away, swears his inheritance away, swears his future away for a bowl of soup, and he gobbles it up, he gets up, he walks out the door, and like, I just picture the door swinging behind him while all of us are like, what? And Jacob's like, yes, that worked, right? It's like Ocean's Eleven, but with no master plan. It just works. It's like, that was the easy way. How did that work? And we get a glimpse of Esau, the caveman of the Old Testament. Yet the problem is that Esau is not a caveman. He's a regular man. I think a few chapters later, Jacob and Esau meet again, and Esau is nothing like this. Or Jacob is sending him all these gifts, and he's coming to meet his brother, and Esau comes out. He's like, Jacob! He's like, what are all these gifts, Jacob? He's like, oh, they're free. Oh, I don't need this, Jacob. Keep them. You're so nice, Jacob. Hey, give me a hug. And he embraces him. He's a human being. And yet here in this chapter, he's so hungry that he sells away his entire life savings and his future inheritance for a bowl of soup. And we're supposed to simultaneously think two things. One, oh my goodness, I would never do that. And you know where this is going. Uh-oh, I think I do that. It's like there's this caveman part of our brain that wants to drive the car. Have you ever had a moment where you just had a hard day you get a text that just sends you in a spiral or your boss says something or your wife or whatever says something and you're just wrecked and you come home and you're exhausted, right? Maybe you haven't been hunting, but you've just been working, right? You come home, you open the fridge, you're just starving and there's nothing in there. You're mad at your fridge, like, there's nothing in you? Come on, right? You look in your freezer, you're like, this takes too long. I don't want, it's already too cold, right? You're mad at your appliances and so you go to the 
open the cupboard, there's like chips there. So you start eating chips while you're looking through the cupboard, right? And you throw some M&Ms in your mouth. You're like, this is okay, right? You grab like a few different snack things and then you open the fridge, you grab a bunch of drinks, you go sit on the couch, you just start, and you're eating and you're eating and you're eating, right? And as you're eating this, right? You have a whole chocolate cake and a fork, right? As you're eating all this, Sometimes you have this like out-of-body experience. You're like, what are you doing, man? That's, don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that. Other times you have no idea. And it's like the caveman that lives in you. This is not a theological point, but the caveman that lives inside of you. It's like he went over to the rational part of you and said, hey, can I drive for a little bit? I don't care. I'm too hungry. Just drive the car. Like, right, And it's funny, kind of, when we just eat a bunch of chips. But that's when you wake up at one in the morning feeling guilty with indigestion and all that. But a lot of times, and some of us have had this, where the caveman takes over and we do things that ruin our lives. Some of you have lost relationships with people in your life who are dear to you because of things that came out of your mouth when the caveman took over. Some of you have been spiraled out of control because of one incident that happened when the caveman took over. Some of you get so filled with rage that you just say things or do things that you would have never imagined a rational person would do. We see that with Esau where he signs away his entire inheritance because he's so hungry he can't think straight. On one hand, his brother's trying to kill him. On the other hand, the brain inside of his head is like, all right, this is where I'm going to take Esau down. And he falls for it. The, the most basic thing we're supposed to get out of this passage is the don't be like Esau thing, right? It's when the caveman wants to drive, say no, right? When you get home, you're like, I'm so hungry. I'm just going to eat and drink all night long, right? It's like, uh-oh, red flag, red flag, red flag, right? Sound the alarm. You get so mad. You're like, you know what? I just need to give him a piece of my mind, right? Hopefully you have friends or your own brain can say, that's not a good idea. Hold me back, hold me back. Say that to yourself. Hold me back, right? Because when there's... In us, the part of our brain that says, you know what's a good idea? You should do that. The best thing we can do in that moment is ignore it and hold the keys tightly and say, you're not driving tonight. Because there's a part of our brain that wants to kill us. At the same time, it's harder than that. If you've ever been in a a situation like that or rhythms in your life or patterns in your life where you've caught into that, it's harder than that. When you get home after a day like that, you're so discouraged. You're not thinking straight. You want to eat because somehow it makes you feel better. You want to drink because somehow it numbs the pain, right? You want to yell at somebody because somebody's got to pay for this, right? It's harder than that. And yet one of the things that we do as we look at the scriptures and see what this looks like from an outsider perspective is we grow a distaste for that. And we pray that somehow that kind of filters into our lives so that we can feel that same way when it almost happens to us. One of the big questions that we would ask when we read a text like this Jacob and Esau story is, where is God? Why why is God not coming back and saying, Esau, Esau, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you sign that paper, you might want to reconsider. Really, what what you think God's role is in the story really depends on your own made-up view of God. Some of us picture, oh, I know where God is. He's the same place he is when I make dumb decisions. He's nowhere to be found. And some of you are like, no, 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 I know where God is. He's there saying, I knew he would do this. I told you this guy all amounts to nothing. Or some of you think God's standing there like, yeah, just eat that. 
Watch how I never bless you again after you eat that, right? All of us have these different opinions of what God does in this story. And yet we read the Jacob and Esau story and God seems to be absent. And yet what makes this story even scarier is that God actually kind of is involved in this story. So just a paragraph or two before, right, before Jacob and Esau were born, I don't know if you've ever given birth to twins before. Maybe this is a normal thing. But the mom was like, what is happening inside of me, right? And so she goes to church and she goes to a pastor or a holy person, whatever, and says, can you please tell me what's happening inside of my body? And the holy man gives a prophecy to Jacob and Esau's mother. And this is what he says is happening inside her stomach. He says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Someday Esau will submit to and serve Jacob, not the other way around. You read this and you realize that Esau was kind of under a curse. It's almost like this moment was inevitable. That because of what had been spoken about him by God before he stepped onto this planet... It's almost like he was destined to fall, destined to fail, destined to squander everything. And I think it's important for us to know that just like Esau was under a curse, all of us are under a curse as well. Did you know that? Right after the Bible opens, sin enters in the world. This is Genesis 3. You can read that this week. Genesis 3, sin enters in the world, and everything starts breaking down, and curses start falling on humankind. God says to the woman, there's going to be pain in the rearing and bearing of children. He says to the man, everything you put your hand to do is going to war against you. With blood, you're going to, and sweat, you're going to bring up thorns and thistles from the ground. That your work will war against you. Your relationship will war against each other. Yourself will war against yourself. You're going to war against God. You're going to war against nature. Everything is breaking down and cursed because now this cancerous sin has entered into human existence. And all of us were born into this. Now, the reason that your brain is trying to kill you is because your brain has been affected by this curse. The reason that you think these lies about yourself is because your cursed brain believes sometimes what is not true. The reason that we have this bad relationship with others and with ourselves and with food and with all these things is because there is a curse that has fallen over mankind and we are part of it. So we see Esau almost like this helpless victim walking into the room, cursed from before he was born, destined to fall and to fail. And we read this story and we're like, yep, me too. Yet the interesting thing is, when Moses writes this account for the people, he actually puts like a moral of the story, like a encapsulates, here's what you need to know about the Jacob and Esau story. And he doesn't say Esau was cursed. And Moses doesn't say, oh yeah, so the prophecy was fulfilled. Instead, this is how Moses ends the story. He says, so Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. And Moses says, what I want you to get out of the story is that a man walked into the room and he so hated, like the old guy hates teenagers, right? He so hated his inheritance. He so hated his birthright. He so hated emotionally The blessing that God had given him as a firstborn son, he so hated it that he was willing to squander everything for a bowl of soup. 
He despised it. And what Moses draws out was not that Esau was under a curse, even though it was true. What Moses drew out was that Esau was simultaneously under a blessing, and he squandered it to live out the curse instead. You know, we, we live under a curse. But you know, we also live under a blessing. Right? The world that we live in is cursed. The body you live in is cursed. The brain you have in your mind, your head, your skull, is cursed. But at the same time, the world that we live in, the mind that we live in, the reality that you live in is under an immense blessing from God simultaneously. Right? God declares, I have sent my son to free you from the curse. And God declares that he loves you. God declares that he has plans for you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. God declares that nothing can separate you from his love. God declares all these things about you that are true, that you've been adopted as his son or daughter, that you're deeply loved and known by God. God declares he listens when you pray. God declares that his spirit will help you in your weakness. God declares that he will provide a way out if you're tempted. God declares all of these things that are true and they're beautiful blessings. So we simultaneously live under the blessing of God and the curse of humankind. And yet hardship falls on us and our brains start to decompose into our lives when we despise the blessing and love the curse, like Esau did. And so if the first kind of secret to, to mental renewal, to transformation, as we start to live lives in this way, is that we need to learn how to despise the curse and love the blessing instead. And if both are simultaneously true, hate the curse, love the blessing. Right, if Esau walked into that room and he loved his birthright, that was the most valuable thing to him, was the blessing that God had given him as a firstborn son, that he was humbled by it. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright. You know what he'd say? No, I'll get some soup at Panera, right? I don't need that. <laughs> right, if he got caught in the trap and Jacob said, swear to me, and Esau loved his birthright, he would have like woken up and been like, wait, what, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to trick me, right? And his eyes would be open. He said, no way, I'd get out of here, right? This is like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Like he'll just book it out the door. Esau fell not because he was under some biblical prophecy. God never said he would sell his birthright. God never said what it would look like to serve his brother. Esau fell because he loved the curse more than the blessing and he despised the blessing of God. It is true that your brain is trying to kill you. But it is just as true that your God is trying to heal you. And so if you want to start living under the blessing of God, escaping the curse that we find ourselves in, the first thing, these are some things that you can write down. The first thing to start equipping yourself with this week, we'll put on the screen here for you. Train your brain, this kind of rhymes, so it's going to be good. Train your brain to despise the lies. Train your brain to despise the lies. And what I mean by that is, say you decided you wanted to go on a diet. I don't know why you decided that, but say you decided you want to go on a diet. There's one of two different relationships that you could develop with chocolate cake as you embark on your diet. All right, opportunity number one go on this diet and you see a chocolate cake and your heart goes out to it. Like, oh, chocolate cake. I'll miss you most of all. 
Right? The waiter says, hey, can I, can I bring you some chocolate cake? Like, yeah, 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 I'm on a diet. I'm not going to eat it, but I just want to smell it. <laughs> You're making a, a relational barter with chocolate cake. I'm just going to take one bite of you. I don't, I don't hate you. I still love you, but I'm not allowed to eat you for a while, right? But I'll be back, right? I still love you, but I know it's on me. It's not on you. You're good. I'm bad. That's one opportunity. That's one possibility. The other possibility is you could decide that you hate chocolate cake, right? Your friend comes over and says, ding dong, happy birthday, chocolate cake, and you smack it out of their hands, right? No, <laughs> not in my house, right? Now you open the freezer, there's chocolate cake in there. You're like, get behind me, Satan, you throw it in the trash, right? You pour bleach on it. I'm not eating this, right? The waiter comes, dessert menu, get out, get out, get out, right? I hate chocolate cake, right? And you say, well, no, I mean, but it's, that's a lie. I love chocolate cake, right? I'm not saying make stuff up. What I'm saying is you're not going to experience victory over the cake unless you learn to despise the cake and, and love your goal instead, right? That's, that's not that important. But with real life, I, I fear that we do that all the time with the blessing and the cursing that we experience in this world. Right, we're walking down the street, and this thought comes in that says you're worthless, or that you'll never amount to anything, or that you're stuck, or that you're unloved, or that you're lonely, or that whatever it is, right? And, and we say, oh, that's probably true. This seems like a broken down, sad thought. I should entertain you for a while. You start running some of the narrative of your life through it. Well, no, I mean, I'm not lonely. I have so-and-so. And then the phrase is, well, that person doesn't actually, oh, yeah, maybe you're right, right? You smell it for a while. Taste it for a while. And before long, right, you're eating the whole lie. <laughs> Where an alternative plan would be that that thought comes in and you stop it at the door. So hold on, no, no, no. Right? I'm not saying power of positive thinking. I'm not saying like choose to not believe. What, what I'm saying is if something comes into your brain that says you are unloved and you have a God who says you are deeply known and loved, one of those things is lying. Right? So decide now on a Sunday morning when you're feeling okay, decide now that your brain is lying and that your God is telling the truth. Right? And so when that lie comes in, it's like, ah, no, 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 no. I'm not going to entertain you. I hate you. I'm going to train my brain to despise the lies. And then the second part is to ask God to help you grow in your love for what is true. Ask God to help you grow in your love for what is true. I might have said that wrong. We'll put it on the screen. Ask God to grow your love for what is true. You know, the reason that you believe the lie, you don't believe the truth, is because you despise the word that God says and you love the word that your brain says. And that's wrong, right? We know that. So part of it is just kind of a mental reconfiguration of saying, you know what? I'm going to choose to hate these lies that plague me. And I know that I don't, in my heart, really believe that I'm loved by God, but I'm going to ask God to help me believe that because he says it. I know he's trustworthy and true. And so part of that is inviting God into that process and asking him, God, please change my thoughts about these things. God, I keep wanting to listen to these lies. They're not true. You say this. I trust you. Let me give my life, my heart to you instead and pray that God would renew and transform your heart and your brain as you despise what you should despise. Don't be like Esau who despised the blessing. And you learn to love the blessing, the truth the beautiful reality that your God loves you and has plans for you and will never leave you 
and can work and redeem anything that's ever happened to you or through you or in you or around you. It's interesting that that article I read on human prejudice said that there's only one way that's ever been shown to dismantle people's deep-seated racism or prejudice that they experience in their own lives. It seems kind of weird, but but they say, here's how it works. You, You need to call it out when you see it in you, right? When the teenagers come down the street, like, oh, teenagers, call it out. Be like, no, that's prejudice. Stop. Call it out. And he said, and this is the most important thing. You need to actively look for people that are opposite of your stereotype and say out loud to yourself, look, see, I was wrong, right? So look, don't look for teenagers, but look for the teenager that's walking down the street, minding their own business, being a sweet person and say to yourself, wow, look at that. I guess I've been wrong all these years. A nice teenager, right? Because they say that your prejudice is not real. It's stereotypical and blanketed and wrong. You need to dismantle it by doing the opposite of reinforcing it every time you see it. You need to dismantle it when you see it and pursue it when you don't. The same thing is true with our thoughts. Dismantle the negative thoughts that are lies from the enemy. And whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's good, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. If you want to be equipped for this this week, Last thing I'll tell you is, look at the Psalms of David. David kind of seems like a bipolar, or schizophrenic kind of person as you're reading some of the Psalms because he starts out so down in the dumps, right? Oh, God, please, I'm hard-pressed on every side. My enemies are trying to kill me. I know you've forsaken me, God. You must hate me. How long, oh, Lord? And then it, like, gets real quiet for a second. He says, but God, I, I know that you're for me. I will never stop praising you. I know that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I I will go into the temple and I will offer my sacrifices to you, God, because you have plans and you are, right? And he turns the tides. He goes through the whole practice of repelling what is wrong and replacing it with what is right. David was not known as the most moral guy in the Bible. He didn't make the best choices. But he was known as a man after God's own heart. And he experienced mental and physical transformation and renewal as he took every thought captive and made it obedient to Christ. Let me pray for us as we go out into the week that God will give us a journey like that as well. Let's pray. Father, I know there's a spectrum of people in this room from folks who struggle with deep-seated, real clinical mental illness, to people who've never even thought about these things before. We pray that wherever we land on your spectrum that you would take us to wherever it is you have for us this week. Our folks who are struggling with mental illness, that you would would give them the, the insight, the grace, the courage to go reach out to somebody who can help them professionally with what they're going through. For folks who feel like they're fine with this stuff, this doesn't bother them, that you would open their eyes to see that, you know what, their brains are affected negatively by the fall too. And for the rest of the folks who live there in the middle, we pray that you would give us open eyes to see the places that our brains are trying to stab and lie to us. And that we would see you in this process, not as someone who's trying to make fun of us or point out our flaws, like a doctor is trying to show us on the x-ray where we're broken so that we can allow him to do surgery or her to do surgery on us. God, we pray that you would do that surgery this week. 
that as you show us these lies that are plaguing us, that we would give them over to you and that you would come in and you would start doing reparative work in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, in our lives, in our futures. That as we walk down this journey with you, that we know it's not going to be overnight. That as we constantly are taking our thoughts captive, making them obedient to you, that you would be renewing our minds and grow us not into old curmudgeonly people, but grow us into people who are mentally healthy and emotionally strong as we grow older with you. I thank you that you never give up on us. And thank you that your grace wants to come in and, and minister to us, that your spirit dwells in us and he'll do the work. We pray that you'll be with us this week as we embark down this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, if you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Like I said, our staff has been praying for all of you who sent in those texts this last week. We'd love to pray for you personally as well, whether or not you texted something in. Our prayer room is right here in the upper lobby. We'd love to come alongside you. Today, if you gave your life to Jesus, that's the first place to go. Go and tell them what's going on and let someone serve you in prayer this morning. Last week, we heard about some pastors from India that we can support. We've got some packets out of the Mission Center if you missed that opportunity last week. But let's stand together. Let me give you a benediction and send you into your week. May God, who loves you deeply, open your eyes this week to show you that you are loved and known by him. And may his spirit guide you as you walk with him towards restoration and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next Sunday.